Traditionally, we who go to doctors and who buy medicine and who check in and out of hospitals have been known as patients. But somewhere along the line, we patients started to be called consumers, a term that suggests things like choice and competition and value for money. And if we are consumers of healthcare, then who would know best how to provide to these consumers? Well, in the last year, we've seen a sudden surge of consumer-oriented companies trying to figure out how to get into healthcare in a big way, like Amazon partnering with a bank and with Warren Buffett with plans to figure out their own healthcare system for their combined million-plus employees, like CVS, the pharmacy, buying Aetna, the insurance company. Their idea, they say they know consumers, they know data, and they know how to deliver value. Are they on to something? Well, we think this has the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two who are experts in this topic, who will argue for and against the resolution. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at the Mayo Clinic's annual Transform Conference in Rochester, Minnesota, will choose the winner. And as always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. <laughs> one, more, one more reminder to the audience. Please cast your pre-debate vote, iq2us.org forward slash vote for, against, or undecided. We're going to keep that vote open for another minute or two. And I want to explain now, after you've heard all of the arguments, we ask you to vote a second time. And we name as our winning team the team whose numbers have moved up the most from the first vote in percentage point terms. So it's the difference between the vote that you've just cast and the second vote. Our resolution, Retail Alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. Let's meet our debaters, starting with the team arguing for the motion. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Rajay Batniji. Rajay, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are a physician, you are a political economist, you are the co-founder and chief health officer at Collective Health. But before all of this, you spent a lot of time in academia. You studied history at Stanford, you went to med school, you studied political economics at Oxford. So tell us, why did you leave academia to start a startup? startup? Impatience. (laughs) In In all seriousness, creating a company to create the change that we need in the healthcare system allows us to move at a much faster pace than, frankly, writing a paper and hoping it lands in the right desk. And, and, and has it been worth it? Absolutely. All right, good to hear. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Rajay Batniji. <laughs> and Rajay, you have a worthy partner. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Greg Slager. Hi, Greg, and welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are a senior partner at Ernst & Young, uh, global health transaction leader and one of the founders of the company's global health sector. Back in 1979, you were a business major in college and you won the <laughs> Calvin Talent Show's grand prize for doing what? Well, it was a rock and roll band at a conservative school that was used to a cappella choirs and barbershop quartets, so set off quite fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> Shook things up, it sounds like. Yeah. All right, good to good, hear. Good fun. We'll see how you shake things up here in this debate. I want to, once again, thank the team arguing for the motion. And, of course, we have two debaters arguing against it. Please first welcome Dr. Lisa Bielamovich. Lisa, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are a physician. You're co-founder and president of GIST Healthcare. 
Uh, you have said that you are passionate about increasing the pace of transformation in healthcare. Passion is a strong word. Where does that come from? So like almost every physician I know, when I was clinically practicing, I was frustrated on a daily basis that the system kept me from being able to do what I thought was best for patients. And like almost every doctor I know, I complained a lot. And I finally had a moment and said I could keep complaining or I could start to change how the system works. So that's what I'm trying to do. Something in common with one of your opponents, actually. Okay, (laughs) thanks again, ladies and gentlemen. Lisa (laughs) Bilimovich. And one last opponent, again, a worthy debater. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Rosemary Day. (laughs) Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Rosemary. You are a founder, CEO of Day Health Strategies. And before that, uh, interesting government work. You were the founding deputy director and chief operating officer of the Health Connector in Massachusetts uh, and chief operating officer for the Massachusetts Medicaid program. Your forthcoming book is titled... Get Woke About Health Coverage, Action Steps to Take for Yourself, Your Family, and the Nation. So tell us, in this context, health coverage, what does it mean to get woke? It means that we need to get informed and we need to get active. Simple as that. Simple as that. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against this resolution. (laughs) And so let's move on to round one. In round one, we have opening statements from each debater in turn. The resolution again, retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. Speaking first for the resolution, and you can make your way to center stage, please welcome Greg Slager, senior partner and global health transitions. I'll do that again because we can always edit. That's a gift that I have that you don't. (laughs) Greg Slager, senior partner and global health transactions leader at Ernst & Young. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Slager. Thank you, John. When we talk about saving healthcare, what we're effectively talking about is achieving the triple aim, reducing unsustainable cost, increasing access to care, and improving clinical outcomes. My partner and I believe that retail alliances, which are the convergence of healthcare with retail, technology, and consumer product companies, and not government, are capable of changing the system and saving healthcare. We all have a lot of pain in the system. We've all experienced that. I won't take you through it all, but we have the fragmentation of care. We have information silos. We have difficulty in getting, getting access to care and getting appointments. And then the bills come in, too. And they keep coming in. And you can't figure them out, too. But that's because we have costs that are out of control. With respect to the cost, too, you know the statistics, $3.3 trillion in, in healthcare expenditures in 2016, 18% of our GDP, $10,348 per person. That's not per family or per county, that's per person that we spend on healthcare. It is out of control. And the sad thing is, is that outcomes rank last against comparable countries in similar developed nations, developed nations with similar economics as ours too. We are last, last, last. Have the highest mortality rate amenable to healthcare. We have the highest error rates. We have the longest wait times with the exception of Canada. And then we also have twice as many, unav- twice as many avoidable emergency room visits as any other country. One of the things that John mentioned is the rise of consumerism and we think that this is a really important facet here. 
So we have been trained. We've been trained by our online experience and what we want out of a consumer interaction. And we want that experience in healthcare too. So what customers are looking for, they're looking for choice. They're looking for choice and care. They're looking for quality. They're looking for costs. And we don't have that now. We don't have that transparency too. So the government isn't very good with consumers. When's the last time you went to your DMV to try to get a license? You want to see the consumer experience there. So we need new delivery models. The old ones aren't working. And our position is, is that consumer-centric retail alliances will help drive access and convenience, enhance the customer experience, and actually kick up innovation as well. You heard about some of this earlier too on the stage of the beginning of the, at the beginning of the session here. So retail health models, they're a key step to cost-effective care anytime, anywhere. Retailers have scale. They have the ability to make these changes. They can also activate through multiple channels. The, imp, the, the engagement that they have with their customers, it's through their... It's through their through their stores, through their clinics, through their doctors, through their nurses, through their websites, through their apps, through the email, through the text, and even old mail, too. We still get those flyers in the mail I'm trying to get rid of. The other thing is innovation. With innovation, tech and, and consumer product companies are creating amazing devices, wearables, implantables, digestibles, things that can measure many of the vital signs that can give early indications of care conditions or, or, or diseases. Same thing with apps. We have 200,000 apps out there. You have apps now that can diagnose your disease by coughing into them. Or, or they can tell by your gait when you're walk walking on your carpet whether your gait is, is impaired and what that, that may lead to. It also can, can measure your care adherence. It also can tell if you've fallen down and it can, and can help you get the appropriate help. To, so I'm not saying that government doesn't have a role here. Government has a very, very important role. But it's to support retail. It's to support innovation. It's not to drive the cart. It's to help push it, too. They need to get behind promising initiatives. They need to also align incentives. And then, most importantly, they need to put the infrastructure in place to gather evidence to implement appropriate regulation. Because what we need in, the, in, t- in our transforming business right now is we need regulation at the speed of innovation, not innovation at the speed of regulation. So in closing, I would say that the retail alliance advantages are many. They have the appetite and the will. They have the appetite and the will. Does government have the will to change the system, to make the changes necessary here? They aren't encumbered by the legacy costs and the legacy inefficiencies, the inertia that's caused by all those people that profit off the inefficiencies. They also have previous experience in adoption and use of technology, which is really important for this business. It is a laggard from an industry perspective, too. And then the customer centricity and engagement, which can actually nudge people into, into, into healthy behaviors, into healthy choices as well, too. So, lastly, they are agnostic to politics. It's not going to change every four years. It's not going to change every two years. 
These are ongoing, long-term investments to really make a difference in the healthcare system, too. So it's time for a new approach to healthcare, and I hope that you will support our proposition that retail, not Washington, will help save healthcare. Thank you. Thank you, Greg Slager. And that is our resolution, Retail Alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. And here to speak first against the resolution, please welcome to center stage, Dr. Lisa Bilamovich, co-founder and president of Just Healthcare. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Lisa Bilamovich. Well, I'm going to start with a little self-help moment. Hello, my name is Lisa. I'm a doctor, and I take my kids to the CVS Minute Clinic. It happened two weeks ago. You know how it is. Your kids start school, have an elementary school student, 10-year-old in fifth grade. She comes home one weekend, Friday evening, sore throat, fever to 102. You guys tell me, what does she have? Strep throat, absolutely. It's Friday evening. She needs antibiotics. I don't prescribe anymore. So, of course, the doctor's office is closed. So what do we do at 8 p.m.? We go down to CVS, we put our name on the list, we mill around looking at magazines and hairbrushes for the better part of an hour, we get seen by the nurse practitioner, we are out in an hour and a half, antibiotic in hand, she's back in school on Monday. Seems like it was fantastic, right? Now, um, while I was sitting there, I was remembering that I am going to be coming to you and defending the negative, that retailers aren't going to be the ones to transform healthcare. So I started thinking, you know what? There was something with this visit. It hit a very important value proposition. It was convenient. But was it going to the doctor? Is it going to replace my daughter's pediatrician? Absolutely not. You know what it felt like? It felt like we were meeting with the nurse across a card table in a broom closet in the back of CVS. So, served a point. But is it truly transformative? And I'll be the first one to admit that I am not up here to convince you that Washington and the government is going to be the main change agent. But I want to give you some thoughts about what retailers would have to do if they're going to truly transform healthcare. I think there's two things that are really important. Simply, are they in it to really change the system? What's their motive for getting into healthcare? And then, second, are they going to tackle the really big problems and the big cost drivers that are the reason that we are 30% more expensive than the next highest spending Western country? And more importantly, will patients like you trust retailers to help them make those big healthcare decisions? So I've been really blessed in my time working in healthcare to get to work with a lot of providers, doctors, hospitals, health systems, including Mayo Clinic, as well as several of the major retailers. And I've gotten an inside window into their strategy in healthcare. Take CVS. These guys have been at it for a long time. Did you know the first Minute Clinic opened here in Minnesota 20 years ago? They are still doing the Minute Clinic thing haven't really expanded much past it. You talk to them and you say, well, why haven't you been able to grow this as quickly? Well, we've been testing out different business models. We're not sure where we want to go with it. And we have found real obstacles to grow right inside the store. You know who their biggest obstacle is? The store manager. That guy is bonused 
on revenue per square foot, how much dog food and shampoo you buy when you are in CVS. He doesn't like a dozen people with the flu mingling around in the back of the store. (laughs) Now take Walmart. I spent some time with them in Bentonville, Arkansas. Walmart will tell you, why are they interested in healthcare? Yeah, there's a lot of money there. They think they can make money on it, but they're more concerned about you and how much your healthcare costs. They think we are spending so much money as individuals that it is hampering our shopping power. (laughs) They think if they can lower healthcare costs, they could, in fact, increase their revenue by three to 5%. They want to get into healthcare so that you can buy more junk from Walmart. That's their value proposition. It goes back to the same retail game. Quick care leading to quick profits. Any of us who've been in healthcare know that change doesn't come quickly. It's frustrated venture capitalists. We're not like any other industry. They come in, they want to turn profits around quickly. Doesn't happen. Retailers are going to get frustrated. And if they're going to really make a dent in healthcare, it can't just be about primary care. That's 7% of total healthcare spend. I think we all agree it should be more, but it is what it is. It can't even just be about pharmaceuticals. That's about 10% of healthcare spend, you have to tackle the big stuff. Hospital care, specialty care, the 10% of patients who account for 80% of costs who have really big, significant problems going on. And I started to think about that visit to the Minute Clinic. We all trust CVS or Walmart or Walgreens or a virtual interaction with a retailer when we pretty much know what's going on. I knew my daughter had strep throat. Shoot, you knew my daughter had strep throat with one sentence. But I would ask you, if they're really going to transform healthcare, are they interested in figuring out which hospital you should go to? Are you interested in having them tell you which hospital you should go to? So to vote yes, you have to believe they're serious about that and that you would trust them to be your partner when it's your turn to walk through the hospital door. Thank you very much, and I hope you will consider our defensive position. Thank you, Lisa Bilamovich. And a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this resolution. Retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. You have heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third to debate for the resolution. Retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. Please welcome to center stage Dr. Rajay Batniji, co-founder and chief health officer at Collective Health. Health. Ladies and gentlemen, Rajay Batniji. Nobody knew healthcare could be so complicated. <laughs> so explained President Trump last year. He continued Let it be a failure. We'll blame it on the Democrats. Ladies and gentlemen, Washington is broken, and a broken Washington cannot save our healthcare system. The results speak for themselves. Washington responds more to the interests of pharmaceutical companies, big health insurers, and hospital systems than it does all of us who are accessing care. Hospital payments since 2000, up 60%. Pharmaceutical costs, up 69%. We see, I looked last night to look at the the stock price of the major publicly traded health insurers, 300% of where they were just five years ago. 
Now, this isn't a red state issue or a blue state issue. It was a Democratic administration that took affordability out of the Affordable Care Act and gave a multi-year, multi-billion dollar concession to big insurers so that they would support the bill. It was a Republican administration who gave up Medicare's ability to negotiate drug prices for seniors. The result? Insulin, which cost $20 a few years ago for a senior, the same medication now costs that senior and his payer $700. Now, Washington is broken. Can we trust it to fix health care? There are two beacons of hope that I see. The first is the American employer and the alliances that employers are forming today. Keep in mind, American employers are paying 88% of private health insurance costs. 88%. And when they pay for health care, they're paying at a rate of 189% of Medicare, according to the Congressional Budget Office. So employers have effectively become the piggy bank that is financing the runaway growth in healthcare spending in this country, paying for that proton beam machine the hospital didn't really need because there's a very suitable one right next door, paying for that fancy new wing. And this cost comes back into our Medicare costs and our Medicaid costs because now the federal government also has to keep these hospitals afloat who have built these institutions of, of exploitation to get more revenue from the private sector because they could, they were unchecked and unrestrained. Employers are beginning to take action. And I see this in what Amazon, Berkshire, and J.P. Morgan are doing. And when Warren Buffett says that he and his, his fellow CEOs are attacking the hungry tapeworm that is eating at the American economy, they mean it. And every CEO in America has woken up and begun to pay attention to their health care costs, recognizing that we can move from a system of health care that is sponsored by employers to one that is driven by them, that goes towards outcomes, that focuses on improving the health and wellness of our people and the bottom lines of our economy. There's another beacon of hope, too, that I see, and that is what we've seen in retail. Like employers have an incentive to drive towards radical transparency and direct first-dollar payment, so too do retailers. Right here in Minnesota, we saw for the first time that retail clinics produced costs that were 40 to 80% cheaper than urgent cares or primary cares in a study, and with no worse quality. We've seen the same thing happen everywhere where insurance ends and retail begins, areas that aren't covered by traditional insurance. Look at the cost of LASIK eye surgery, down 30% over the last 10 years. Nothing else in healthcare decreases in cost. Look at the cost of in vitro fertilization. As technology has improved, the costs have come down. We always see the inverse in healthcare. Even specialty surgeries. Look at the surgery center of Oklahoma, where you can get on Google and you get a price list for a knee replacement, and it's 20% of the cost of a competing institution. We see this across the board. The question tonight is about who will have the incentive to reshape pharmaceutical distribution and care delivery and move us out of a world of secret negotiations where the winner negotiates the best deal into a world where we are rewarding the best service. 
And normally this would be an important question, but it's particularly acute in today's political climate. Over the last two years, Washington has moved to defund the children's health insurance program, defund Planned Parenthood. Today, the House passed a bill that seeks to remove $1.5 trillion from Medicaid and $500 billion from Medicare. We have a, 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 a court system that is set on taking away a woman's right to choose. Ladies and gentlemen, Washington is coordinating an assault on the health of women, children, the elderly, and the poor. We have an American economy and a set of incentives and retail and employer enterprises that are looking to take it back. Will Washington save our system? Please join me in voting for the motion to prove that America can save the healthcare system. Thank you, Ratney Batniji. And our final speaker will be arguing against the motion, Retail Alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. That is Rosemary Day, founder and CEO of Day Health Strategies. Please welcome Rosemary Day. So the United States has some of the most innovative, life-saving treatments in the, country, in the world. But for the 28 million uninsured Americans, those treatments are completely out of reach. And for the 82 million Americans who have health insurance but can barely afford what they've got, they are de- deferring care and actually not getting the care they need, which actually puts their lives at risk. So who are these people that are being left out of our health care system? It's actually the American workers who are fueling our economy. It's the delivery drivers who bring Amazon's packages to your door and other people in the gig economy, which happens to be one of the biggest growing segments in our economy. For those people, they don't have health insurance, and their only option for health care is to either cross their fingers or show up in the ER. So in this lack of access to healthcare, we lag way behind comparable countries. We lag behind in other measures. You've heard um, the other debaters talk about this, cost and quality. In fact, we actually spend twice as much in this country and we get half the results. So these measures, cost, quality, and access, those are really the measures of how an entire healthcare system is performing. And we could be doing much better in these measures. In fact, we're failing in many of them. We do need to save the U.S. healthcare system, and the question on the table is, will retail alliances save us? I'm here with Lisa, my partner, to argue that no, in fact, they will not. The bottom line is that if you want to address cost, quality, and access for all, then retail is not enough. Let's start with cost. We spend 18% of our GDP on healthcare. Other countries spend 10%. If we want to reduce our health care spending, retail is not enough. As Lisa mentioned, if you go to CVS, um, they can provide you with some convenience, and that's great, but that's not actually addressing the major cost drivers in our system. If we look at quality measures, things like um, hospital admissions from preventable disease or life expectancy, we lag behind other countries. It's frankly kind of embarrassing. To improve those quality measures, we really need to invest outside of healthcare into the social determinants of health. If we want to bring 
Um, in terms of access, are 100 million American workers, including those Amazon drivers, into, um, into the system. Retail is not going to solve that. And why isn't retail enough? The first, um, is that, the first reason is that retail alliances are for-profit. There are really three main reasons. For-profit, they leave people out, and they don't have the scale. So in terms of for-profit businesses, a retailer's bottom line is really not society's bottom line. They are not oriented towards doing the common good. They need paying customers. They take a short-term view. They have to. Their priority is their, share, their shareholders, not what's good for society. So if you're a low-income Medicaid customer and you have a lot of different complex needs, or you're an Amazon driver in between gigs, retailers don't really see you as a money-making opportunity. And that's not to say there aren't a lot of for-profit companies doing great things, but again, their priorities are their shareholders. If we turn to employers, let's look at what they're doing. They actually leave out most of the population. They insure less than half of our population. That's 151 million people, which is a lot, but the scale of the, retail, of, of the employers who can actually drive change is very small. It's less than half of that. And when you look at the alliances like Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan, they only cover a tiny fraction, a million of people. So providers are not going to make changes if they don't feel like they've got the, um, the people coming in the door who are really going to be able to affect that change. And I submit that employers don't have that scale. Um, in fact, it's government that has that scale. Government is playing an increasingly large role in the role of payer, both for Medicare and Medicaid. And if we look at that silver tsunami that's coming at us, that's only going to grow. So ultimately, retailers and employers' scope is limited. Retail alliances are not enough. Washington actually has to be part of the solution. And I would submit that Washington is us. Our healthcare system is vast and complex, but it does require systemic solutions. Washington won't solve all of our problems. Um, I run a for-profit healthcare consulting firm, I admit. Um, and I know that Washington and, and government can hinder private enterprise. But I've also seen firsthand how government can work. When I helped start up the um, Health Connector in Massachusetts, we served as a real catalyst for change. And we found a way to collaborate. We found a way to bring industry and um, the government together to build a model that insured hundreds of thousands of people. We were a convener, we leveled the playing field, and we ensured equity through subsidies. So when you look at the healthcare industry, it is unique. It's actually full of market failures like monopolies, short-term incentives, all kinds of things that the private sector won't solve on its own. We need Washington at the table. So I'm excited about the debate. I'm a big fan of innovation. I think that that is part of the equation, but it's not going to address cost, quality, and access for all. For a healthcare system as vast and complex as ours, we have to have retail employers. They are necessary, but they're not sufficient. We need government at the table, and we need to see that other developed nations have actually made that successful. They provide overwhelming proof that this can happen. We don't need scattershot solutions. We need a better functioning system. So I urge you to vote no on the motion that retail alliances will save us. 
Thank you, Rosemary Day. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. Now we move on to round two. And in round two, the debaters address one another directly. They also take questions from me and from you, our audience here at the Mayo Transform Conference. Uh, the resolution again, retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. We have two debaters arguing in support of this motion, uh, Rajay Batniji and Greg Slager. They are arguing that Washington is broken, that the U.S. in too many categories is last, 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 that the government does not know how to serve consumers, but that retail uh, outfits do, that there are so many lessons to be taken from the online experience in dealing with choice, with care, with quality, that the retailers know how to scale, that they have multiple ways to reach customers, and not just their employees, but also their customers. They ask rhetorically the question, who really has the incentive to fix the problem and to reward the best service and do so with transparency? And their answer to that is the American employer with an emphasis on the real t- retail sector. The team arguing against the motion, uh, Lisa Bilamovich and Rosemary Day, they say they are not arguing that Washington is the sole solution, but they are definitely saying that retail is not the solution. They say that going to a clinic such as Walmart's may be convenient, but it's just not the same thing as going to the doctor. They question the motives of these retailers. They say that they cannot scale, that uh, the kind of medicine that needs to be delivered, the kind of healthcare that needs to be delivered system-wide is not just primary care, but really the big, big problems, and they don't see these companies getting interested in that. The bottom line, they say, is that a retailer's bottom line is not society's bottom line. So a lot of a lot of area of disagreement and I want to work through some of it. But I want to start I want to go to the side that's arguing for the resolution and take to uh take to you um um Greg Slager. Your both of your opponents argued that the fact that retail companies ultimate loyalty, I think they're saying, is to shareholders, not to the health of their employees or the health of their customers is, is just a fact of life, really kind of gives the lie to the whole notion that we should be trusting them to take on this job. What's your response to that? Well, I think, first off, I think that if you're lowering your health care costs for your employees so you can buy more goods, she called it junk, there's a big portion of America that doesn't think it's junk and it's survival for them. I think that that's important because what you've done is you've gave them choice. You've reduced health care costs which is not a choice, and you gave them choice. So I think that's important. And I think also you can look at some of the, some of the exercises that some of these retailers have gone into. Um, CVS took cigarettes out of their store. $2 billion of sales, gone overnight, too, because they want to be viewed as a health provider. And also, too, I think, you know, they're... They are building trust, too. I think if you think about retailers and what's going on in the market today is that they're, they're becoming more mission-based. They're trying to build trust. And, 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 and what they want that to do is they want to be able to serve more of, of their community's issues and problems, too. And frankly, too, I think, you know, when we look at some of these big problems as well, John, I think, uh, you know, part of this is not... Sick care. This is health care. This is, this is helping them live healthier lives. This is nudging them. This is helping them with nutrition. This is keeping them going. Those are the big problems. 
I mean, you look at diabetes and heart well, disease. Let, let, actually, let me stop you there because yeah. you've made quite a few points. I just want to let your opponents respond to some of what you're saying. If you're talking health and wellness, I mean, is CVS really interested in that? I'll agree that they waved the flag on cigarettes, but I was out in one in California a couple of weeks ago. There was still liquor and Cheetos all over the place. They are still selling those high-profit items. And I agree, giving patients, low-income or high-income, the choice of a $60 cash primary care visit versus going to the doctor, which if I have to pay cash for it, it's probably $120, $150, is a very important choice. But by changing that calculus, are we going to tackle the really big cost drivers in healthcare? Rajay. If I may, you know, uh, Dr. Bilimovich, you you made a great point in a few pieces that you wrote recently. Uh, you know, four months ago, you wrote an article titled Walmart will bring everyday low prices to healthcare," mm-hmm. where you actually made the case that Walmart wouldn't just provide healthcare services in their stores, but they were going to be able to provide primary care to low cost insurance products, steering members to preferred hospitals. You took the argument further, mm-hmm. further than I would. You were quoted uh, just two months ago explaining that Amazon's, and I quote, Amazon's scale will allow them to negotiate prices in a way that the drug industry has never seen before. And you continued, they have a company ethic of returning these kinds of savings to consumers. So, so Dr. Bill Mubbs, I think you've made our argument more impassioned. Right. So than it's, yeah, it's the old use the debater's words and <laughs> the trick. Well, I mean, so go for it. there is no doubt that these companies are going to affect change in parts of the system. It's the exact same two that I said when I was uh, giving you my opening remarks. Primary care is 7% of healthcare spend. They are definitely going to change the way that primary care is delivered. I hope, both as a consumer and a physician, that Amazon comes in and pulls the rug out from drug companies. That's, at best, 10 to 15% of spend. And remember how much of the drug spend is stuff that actually happens in pharmacies. A lot of it is in other places. Amazon's not going to touch that. When you look at other retailers, look at CVS. What are they in addition to being a retailer? Well, let's look at their balance sheet. $177 billion of annual revenue. $120 billion of that comes from being a pharmacy benefits manager, one of those secretive middlemen who makes tons of money off of you and me and the employers by negotiating and coming up with secret drug prices, I would argue, are they a retailer or are they a middleman when you actually right. look at the company? Let's take Greg Slager into some of that. And, and some of what I think your opponent is saying is that uh, the, 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 the benefits that you're talking about that the retailers may provide are real to the extent that they go, but she's saying that they touch such a small part of the problem. The resolution will save the U.S. healthcare system. That's a big, big target. So what about her basic response? The, and, and, and also, Rosemary Day made the same point. The retailers can't scale to the real size of the problem. Well, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, if you look at the top two pharmacy chains, they, they have 20,000 retail locations amongst them. So um, we have 5,500 hospitals in this country. If you look at you know, the large retailers, like the Walmarts and other things, you're adding another ten or 15,000 locations here, too. So... So that's one thing in terms of getting care to the communities, I think is really important. And a lot of them are in rural locations too that are underserved, that can't get to a doctor. 40% of them don't have primary care physicians. So this is the only place that they're going to get their care. Um, So it's very important to them. And a lot of them have these, they're diabetes, they have heart disease, they have the the big contributors to the the 5% that make up 50% of our healthcare dollars. So if they can engage with them and they can 
help manage behaviors and they can do more preventive type, type activities regardless of, of whether, you know, whether or not it makes more profit to them because they buy more things. I mean, if it's, it's reducing our cost of care, that's big. Okay. If, Let me take it to Rosemary Day. Yeah, so I think um, there's actually evidence that the retailers and these, these clinics and such um, do not try to locate in areas that are underserved. And so it goes back to my point about that complicated Medicaid patient. We, have, uh, we were looking at a study in, in Chicago that showed that there were actual complete um, almost blackout areas where the retailers wouldn't go because they don't see it as a money-making place to have a clinic. And so we've actually ended up seeing some pharmacy deserts to go along with the food deserts that we talk about in urban areas. Yeah. But Jay, what, what is on your, your team is arguing that the retailers come with specific skills and advantages that, that can be scaled. But I want to talk about what those skills and advantages are. What are they good at? in dealing with the consumer? What do they know about consumers? What about their relationship, past relationships with consumers and also the use of data that you are arguing gives them an advantage? So I think, and my, my partner Greg may, made this point, you know, retailers, when, when you go and you're going to that retail clinic, they, they know who you are, they know about you, they're very familiar with you. But that's actually not the entirety of the story. It's actually more to me about how their incentives are aligned and how they're competing. They're competing to be the most convenient solution. They're competing to be the lowest cost solution for you. And that is really important if you think about the fundamental care issues that face us, whether it's chronic disease management, uh, and, and I think even retailers are getting into more advanced things. I think to me, the definition of retailer isn't just a pharmacy store. It's anybody who's bringing a retail approach to healthcare. That could be a surgery center. That could be an employer who has worked with a local provider system to change the dynamics of the and, game. And why is that better? Why why, is, why, why, what's the benefit of, of having that, that perspective on it? Because your incentives are fundamentally aligned. In today's world, who gets rewarded is who strikes the best backroom deal. And in the future, who gets rewarded is who provides the best service at the best price and takes care of the member and delivers outcomes. Okay, let well, me I would stick s- back to Lisa. I really find it interesting. You mentioned in your opening remarks, Surgery Center of Oklahoma. I know those guys. They're a bunch of orthopedic surgeons who opened an ambulatory surgery center and are doing something very interesting with transparency and reference pricing. I don't think anyone would call them a retailer. I agree that they are applying some retail tactics. I will come yeah. back. I just one sentence. Do you consider them a retailer for the sake of your argument? I just want to know what our... Absolutely. Okay, back to you, Lisa. How are they paid? How much of their business is cash? All of it. Oh, no, that's not true. They don't take insurance? That is absolutely not true. It is true. No, they... <laughs> now, what the happens is employers... We need a fact check. Your insurance. <laughs> employers contract with them, mm-hmm. and then they have a defined price, but there's no negotiation. The price list is the price list. So why are you not considering that retail? What's, what's your... Because they're still operating within the traditional confines of employer-sponsored insurance. They do see Medicare patients as well. They do contracting with the state of Oklahoma. Again... Are they a retailer who is transforming healthcare? No. They are a very traditional provider that has existed for decades who is very smartly taking some ideas from the retail okay. world and applying them to make the traditional system better. All right. You've made a, a, quite a strong point, actually. I just want to know how you respond to it. I think this point 
is, is sort of beyond the context of the debate. Whether or not Surgery Center of Oklahoma is a retailer or not, they are bringing a retail approach to healthcare, and that's what we need. That's what every employer in America is driving toward. When Amazon, Berkshire, and J.P. Morgan announce their initiative, what they seek to do is to do exactly that, to reward quality, to work directly with provider systems, so it's easy for them all to replicate what we've created in the retail space of clear, simple transactions and rewarding for value. I agree that Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan has some Amazon juju, but why haven't other employer alliances like the Health Transformation Alliance, which had IBM, HCA, uh, over two dozen large companies, they haven't done anything apart from cutting a few drug company contracts. I want to let the other two voices (laughs) into the conversation uh, here now. Um, Rosemary, your your opponents uh, are arguing, you made the point that um, a retailer's bottom line is not society's bottom line. They're sort of saying actually those two things are not in conflict with each other necessarily. That in fact, um, when they're saying the incentives are aligned and that a, a CVS or any other provider at this scale would have absolutely every motive to have happy customers, happy consumers getting the healthcare they want, they need, and that in fact there isn't that conflict there. Am I correct that you're, you're making that? Yeah. yeah, so there's not that conflict there. Well, I think the key is who can actually be a customer. It has to be somebody who has a way to pay for something. They have to have an ability to pay. And so whether that's they're coming out of their pocket or the employer that's covering their insurance or they're on the Medicaid program and that's actually a government subsidy, somehow there has to be some money for the transaction. And there are a lot of people who don't have access to any of those things I just mentioned. And so they're shut out. So we don't have a 100% customer base. And that's where retail's bottom line but, is but, not but society. But, they, but they've been making the argument that, in fact, it's, it's um, people of, of lesser means who are able to take advantage of things like a minute clinic at a Walmart or a CVS, that they're not cut out, that they're actually, they have more opportunity and choice than they would otherwise. Um, to some limited extent, but there are still people who simply can't even access that. Greg Slager. Uh, they're, they, they can't, if they can't access that, they probably can't access other, other care facilities as well, too. So I think there is a better chance that they can access care, care in, a, in, a, in a retail environment, too, because think about retail as well. I mean, the reason why they're lower cost is because they're subsidizing the bricks and mortar. They don't have these towers. They don't have these ivory towers full of doctors that, they, that get baked into the prices. They're you know, the $4 generics or the, or, you know, $4 for their employees or $40 visits, those are, those are rock bottom prices too. There's, there's many more areas of the continuum of care that they are being cut out of currently in the, in the way that the old model works. And we talk about the ivory tower. What about the ivory ICU? I don't see Walmart having a $4 ICU or a $4 operating Thank you. So the better point for me to make is actually that it's not just about the sniffles and the the kind of low-hanging fruit, if you will, that a minute clinic can deal with. It's the the more intensive um, needs that they're shut out of. Bridget? I don't think we're arguing that you're going to go and get a you know, triple coronary bypass in a Target dressing room. Uh, nor are we arguing that government should completely abdicate its role. And, and Rosemarie, with all due respect, the argument that employers are only covering half of America and therefore can't exert change on the system just doesn't hold water. 
Employers are the largest payer in the healthcare system. 151 million Americans compared to 50-some million Americans on Medicaid, 60-some million Americans, sorry, 50-some million Americans on Medicare, 60-some million on Medicaid. Employers are the biggest payer in the system, and they're the business class passengers. They're paying the highest prices to these provider systems. Employers do have the ability to exert their power and finally start acting like the biggest purchasers in the system and get prices under control, and federal programs will benefit from that by having lower prices and a more responsible system where we contain runaway growth. Well, that's really interesting because why are they paying almost twice as much as Medicare for the exact same things? That actually suggests that government has got more of the power to um, uh, influence prices, if you will, than the employers have shown to date for as big as you say they are. What it actually proves is that employers have, have worked not directly, but rather through intermediaries that keep them totally in the dark about pricing. And that's what these employer alliances are all about. It's about getting employers to work directly with the provider systems and finally exert their control. And that will drive down costs. I mean, when you talk about employers exerting control, I am all for it. Uh, what your company does in partnering with large employers to exert more control is fantastic work. But when you get right down to it, large employers are only a third of all employed Americans. My family owns a John Deere dealership outside of Houston, Texas. My mother who manages the benefits doesn't have the time, bandwidth, or knowledge to not go through an intermediary to help them find good health care for their couple of dozen employees. Completely different game for the folks who work for small business. And I would add that insurers, I think is the missing name here, have been that intermediary. Um, And they've often been accused of having a lot of power, maybe sometimes too much in some certain markets. And yet they struggle when they go up against some of the large provider systems that have been increasingly consolidating and assembling their market power and almost in a sense being able to set prices. Okay, so I, I wanna, where I wanna, can an employer alliance, it feels a little like David and Goliath to me. I want to let the other side respond and then I want to come to your <laughs> questions and the lights will come up and I said a microphone will be brought to you. That was wrong. There's a microphone on each side for you to line up at and if you could... Uh, Position yourselves there, then I can call on you. Which of you would like to respond to Greg? I would. I would. So, so to address that issue, and that's a good, those, are good, those are good points that you're making here too. But when you're thinking about saving, you're thinking about the future and not the past. And when I think about you know, innovation and tech companies and, and consumer product companies and what they're bringing to the table here too are these demand aggregation platforms. And the whole purpose of these, you've seen them disrupt other industries. They've disrupted travel. They've disrupted media. They've disrupted retail. 60% of, of purchases are made through a demand aggregation platform online from a retail perspective. And we're building those things to try to drive similar disruption. Aggregating employees' demand will encourage pro- pro- provider and supplier platform involvement too. And it's a virtuous cycle. We've seen it happen many, many times. This is where technology can help. It's a virtuous cycle. The more employers that come on board than these alliances and these small ones in your, fa- in your family's business that could get on a platform that could have care and supplies and whatnot delivered 
delivered more price competitively and more transparently. Okay. Transparency can really change. Can I just ask I, one I, I, have, I have to jump in so we can move on to audience questions. And if you could bring up the house lights so I can see folks, that would really be helpful. I want to let you know tonight's debate is being broadcast worldwide on our website, iq2es.org, and on Facebook Live. If you're watching on the live stream, we want to hear from you too. You can send us your questions on Twitter or Facebook. The hashtag is iq2uslive, so use that so we don't miss it. And please be sure to let us know your city and your state and your first name and your country. <laughs> Sir, so I really need tight questions so that we can get in as many as possible and real questions. Uh, and if you could tell us your name too, please. Thank you, thank you all. My name is Venk Belamkanda. I live here in Rochester. I function as an emergency doc. I, my question is to both sides and what you think the government and retailers could do for the homeless and others who currently are being underserved. We've heard a lot about how the, the Middle America group has easy access in retail. What about the homeless people? Um, I'll take, which side would like to go first on that? Jay or? I'd like to hear from them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, if, if you don't mind, um, I think that's a great question. And as we talk about transforming the healthcare system too, and we, we totally agree that government has a role in here too. And I think one place where we fail in this country that other countries do a much better job of is in our social care and in our social network and creating those safety nets. So I, I personally think that, that the government and retail should work together to figure something out like that. But I really do think that social care is really something that we really need to invest in. If I may add just yes, briefly, I, I, I work as a physician. I used to work in homeless clinics in San Francisco, a city that is plagued by a significant homeless problem. Uh, you know, I asked the question, and, and Rosemarie made the point that, you know, Medicare and Medicaid are great negotiators, but I'd ask, you know, if I'm running a homeless clinic, which, which I've done in the past, would, would I prefer to pay Medicare and Medicaid prices for a Band-Aid and Tylenol, or would I prefer to pay Amazon prices? And I think that the change in the distribution that we can have is going to be meaningful, and it's going to allow us to provide better care for the poor, and it's going to free us up to provide, invest further in our social safety programs, to expand Medicaid, government has a very important role to play in the future of our system. Our point is that government isn't going to save our system, but rather retailers and employer alliances are going to drive costs down, and the homeless will benefit from that, oh. as will the, the weakest of all Americans. From the other side, in response to that question? So I think that um, you know, they're still going to be the forgotten people until they actually have some money to put on the table. And so... Um, government needs to play that role to not forget about uh, the folks, and particularly folks who are homeless. That is absolutely where we need to have a social safety net. And our country does very poorly relative to others in terms of our investment in social services. So that's something that we have to have the collective will to do. And I do think that retailers can partner in that. I think there are innovative programs where I know in Boston, um, sometimes the doctors are prescribing food and other basic things, and they partner with local retailers to be able to offer that in a convenient way in an urban area so that we don't have a food and a pharmacy desert. Okay. I do like the idea of a trickle-down healthcare benefits to the homeless. Employers and retailers are going to lower costs and it'll make its way. To Nobody made that argument. <laughs> what I would like to give every homeless person access to is a federally qualified health center, which provides fantastic primary care and mental health benefits to a lot of Americans. Federally I'm gonna, qualified. I'm going to alternate questions. By the way, sir, that was a 
perfect example of a question that got the debate to a new and interesting place. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Uh, if you could tell us your name too, please. I'm Bob, a uh, family practitioner from Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. And this is uh, directed at the four people. Um, are the retailers thinking about having comprehensive direct primary care or is this just going to be more urgent care in, in uh, walk-in clinics? And I hope you know what direct primary care, it's you know, set price for transparent price on a monthly basis for preventive and primary care services. Uh, which would like to take that? Okay. I, can, I can certainly speak okay. to it. Uh, I, I think it's definitely the latter. Uh, we're moving to a system where everyone recognizes that having direct primary care that's comprehensive is important. It's not only occurring in the retailers that you think of as you know, drugstores and otherwise, but employers are increasingly offering that kind of care at their facilities. I see this in the employers I work with that offer on-site clinics that go beyond just urgent care to primary care, behavioral health care, and some even going further than that in imaging centers and, and so on. And so I think that the transformation that you're seeing of where care occurs and to ensure that it occurs at the best possible price point in the most convenient location goes beyond having just urgent care. It's all-encompassing, and it also is reflected in how employers and others are working with provider systems to create those kind of risk arrangements. Okay. I, I'm taking that as a light-shedding question as opposed to a debatable question. So I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this resolution. Retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. Sir, you're up. Yeah, thank you. My name is Spencer Merchant uh, from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I work for uh, uh, the insurance side. Great debate so far. I'd ask the side for the retail, um, how are the retail agencies going to transform clinical care? You've spoken mo mostly about price points and negotiation and, and a little bit into access, but uh, versus the government agencies that have the VA clinics and they have social services and universities that deliver care, how will retail? What does this future really look like? Nuts in both sense, yeah. Uh, Greg, do you want to take that? Uh, well, I think it's, it's going to evolve. I mean, it's, it's certainly going to evolve as we talked about, as we talked about this. Um, you know, more money is going into consulting rooms and expanding the care uh, facilities and, uh, and these large retailers. Uh, so I, yeah, my, my expectation is that it is going to continue to go. Some of these, some of these entities, I mean, there, there, are, there are food deserts and there are pharmacy deserts too, but some of these retailers, they're, the, they're effectively the community centers they know all the people in, in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in the neighborhood. They come in. Walmart has 150 million visitors to their stores every, every year. The, uh, you know, the engagement that they have with the folks in their community, um, I think, is really, really important. I think it's going to help them in terms of you know, preventable, pre preventable care. I think the health care as opposed to sick care. I think it's going to you know, stop ER admissions, too. And I think they're going to continue to evolve in that. They've got a they've got a built-in advantage. I mean, because people are going there, they they got the convenience, they got the access. They're they're also subsidized, as I mentioned. I mean, their buildings are subsidized, so it can continue to drive lower cost care throughout the continuum. I'd like to get the other side to respond on that point. And the reason, I, I, in, in my own reporting around the country, there are parts of the country I now go to where the the downtown, small downtown, is gone. 
because Walmart came to town. But you know what? Walmart replaced it. Walmart is the village square. People do go there, and there's a social life, and, and, and there's a, there is a sense of community there. So your opponents are arguing that that sense of community is a real, tangible, positive thing to be taken into account in this debate. I just want to see what your response is to that. So it's hard for me to judge whether Walmart really is creating a sense of community compared to like that mom and pop pharmacy where they knew you over the long term. And now pops out of a job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, maybe in some spots that's true. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I really see Walmart as a pretty big corporation cycling, you know, millions of people through its doors every day. I'm hard-pressed to see a true community there, unlike um, what we talk about with a federally qualified health center um, or a, a doctor who has a long-term relationship, you know, with their, with their patient. So I do think it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to just comment. I think there have been some really interesting things coming out of government and innovation, um, and, and really um, the Center for uh, Innovation that's part of CMS uh, that helped spawn the ACOs and all of that change in clinical um, approach has actually come from government. Um, I don't think we've seen as much of that originating in the private sector, at least yet. I want to go to a question here. Hi, I'm Hannah Barton. I'm from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we've spoken a little bit about how you need money to access the system as it exists today and how you would likely need that in any system that's going to go forward. Um, But what about the incentive that retail has to actually create a future where you then have money to, you know, to participate in retail? So... You know, I access care now, which might cost retail money, but in the future, then I'm, uh, you know, able to participate in a way that are, I wouldn't are, But are you seeing that dynamic as an argument to support the foresight or as a question, as a challenge to the foresight? It's a question for both sides. Um, what the... Okay, okay, let's take, the reason I I asked that question is I thought I actually heard this side arguing that that's the the only reason that Walmart is interested in bringing down healthcare costs is so that you would have more money to spend on other products in Walmart. You you didn't actually argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but a phenomenon, but I want to take it to the other side first. The, the, The question about the dynamic of these retailers, I think, having a motive. Of, or, or just an effect of putting more spending money in people's pockets because their health care costs have gone down? Well, as, as I mentioned, I, I think that's a good thing because what you've done is you've moved something that was not by choice to something that is by choice, something that's a burden to something that's an opportunity. So I, I feel strongly about that. that uh, and, you know, we have to... Th- Think about those families and what they what they need in their, their life. Do they need to pay more for health care or more for other you know, food and essentials to, to create the, you know, the kind of help the social determinants and help the other impacts on health outside of just visiting the health system? So, Lisa, why is that a bad thing? If they drive down costs and you can buy more stuff at Walmart, why is so? Well, so, there's two points that I would make. First being, okay, they might free up a little bit of uh, your disposable income by changing how you buy a drug or get a flu shot or a sore throat visit. That's a fantastic thing. But if they're really going to transform the system, you're going to have to trust a retailer to partner with you on something like cancer care. Are you ready for that? Are you going to like Walmart telling you where you have to go to get your chemotherapy? That's just a question you have to consider. 
Second, I would also not go directly to retail as the only solution that can free up more of our disposable income from healthcare. Uh, as my opponent said, employers working in different ways could do that too. Um, it may not be my necessary political stance, but a lot of people are arguing that Medicare for all would do that for the average American. So I think there are myriad ways we could get there. Okay, I would love to continue with the question and answer section, but we are out of time. That concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. And now we move on to round three, and round three are where each of the debaters makes a closing statement. It will be two minutes for each of the speakers. First, to making his closing statement, Greg Slager, senior partner and global health transaction leader at Ernst & Young. So I'll just, just there's a follow-on to that question, actually, too. So, I mean, I just want you to imagine Irene, and, and everybody knows an Irene. So Irene is 56 years old. She lives with her husband. She's on fixed income. She's got diabetes, and she's struggling with high blood pressure. She goes to her retailer once or twice a week with her husband. She's enticed on to come there to buy products that she typically buys that the retailer knows through its intimate relationship and engagement and, and through using data analytics. So they bring her in. While she's in, she goes to the pharmacy. She refills a script. She buys some insulin strips. She stops to get her blood pressure tested to compare it to her home results. She's got one at home, and it's, it's, it's been spiking a bit, so she goes in the, to Walmart, and for free, she gets her, her blood pressure taken. It's, it's high, so she stops by the clinic to get, to get some questions answered. And what they do is they put her on a telehealth monitor with a doctor who, who talks to her about her, asks her about what's going on, any other kind of things in her life that may be causing these things, and then gives her a new, new uh, prescription. So she goes and she pays for a generic $4. So the retailer then sends her texts on, on care adherence and nutrition suggestions and what, what not to. So what the retailer is doing here is trying to address the chronic disease issues. It's trying to address the long-term disease issues, which are big cost considerations for our system. It's also keeping her out of the ER. I mean, because 40% of these people that, sh that show up in these retail clinics don't have a primary care physician. They are serving a need, and they are really making an impact on cost of care. So contrast this with the old model of care. And the government can't do it. And the old model of care, too, is we'll build it. You will come wherever we are. You'll pay whatever we are. That's not what retail is all about. So we want you to understand that retail can fix this problem much better than government. Thank you, Greg Slager. That's an applause line. Thank you. The resolution again, retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. health care system, making her closing against the motion, Lisa Bilimovich, co-founder and president of Just Healthcare. We are a long way away from a retailer providing comprehensive health services. Remember my visit to the retail clinic? nurse practitioner across a card table and a broom closet. Retailers will continue to up the game for convenient care. They might completely change that part of the system. Uh, you know, what retailers are doing, though, is they are starting to create different motives from traditional providers. I work with a lot of doctors, hospitals, health systems, insurers, 
who are now thinking about how they should provide telemedicine solution, different in-kind access that isn't going to the hospital or the doctor. But will retailers actually transform the system? Are they going to tackle the big cost drivers in healthcare, which are very sick patients coming in for very intensive care needs. Changing primary care is fantastic. It needs to be done at 7% of all healthcare spend. But I would ask you, if you're going to vote yes, you would have to feel comfortable going to Walmart when you're worried you might have cancer and having them potentially direct you to a lower-cost provider. I love everyday low prices. I am all for saving money and living better, but I don't know if that will include my cancer care. Will you trust a retailer with your end-of-life healthcare decisions? Remember what large percentage of our country's healthcare spend is end-of-life. If you're going to truly transform the system, you can't just provide a telemedicine visit, you can't just provide a $4 low-cost generic drug, and you can't just be quick care. You have to be motivated to provide care to really sick patients. And if you're not willing to answer yes to that question for yourself personally, then I think you have to vote no. Thank you, Lisa Bilamovich. Again, the resolution, Retail Alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system, making his closing statement against the motion, Dr. Rajai Batniji, co-founder and chief health officer at Collective Health. I see the urgency of fixing our healthcare system in every patient that I treat. And I recognize, like many of us that work in healthcare, I've been part of the problem. I've ordered a $1,200 bag of saline to save a patient's life, knowing that it cost my hospital a dollar or two. I know that I've created financial distress for my patient as he's been sent to collections, and that bill has my name on it, and I'm not proud of that. I know I've contributed to the profits of companies that have manipulated our governments and our markets. We simply can't afford a theoretical debate about who can fix health care It needs to be a conversation about who can actually save it. What's it mean to save something? I remember as a kid, I was rescued from the water. I like to go out over my head sometimes in the surf, and the lifeguard threw me a red flotation device and said, hang on to this thing like it's your mother, and he pulled me to shore. He didn't pay for my college education or my high school education or food or anything like that. My family and the government did. And that's what it means to save something, to pull it out of the turbulence and put it on dry land. Today, we're faced with a healthcare system that needs saving. I have not heard my opponents make a single argument about how government can save our healthcare system, not a single one. We've made several arguments about how retail can save our system and how employers working directly to take this system from a world of obscure contracts negotiated in dark, smoke-filled rooms and clear out the smoke and turn on the lights and turn this into a transparent system where we know what we pay for and we pay for value. So let's turn on the lights and clear the smoke. Please join us in this motion and vote for the resolution. Thank you, Rajay Batniji. And that resolution, one more time, Retail Alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. health care system, here making her closing statement against the motion, Rosemary Day, founder and CEO, Day Health Strategies. So I want to close with a story um, 
Greg had Irene. I have Eloise. I'd like you to meet Eloise. She's someone I actually met when we were implementing health reform in Massachusetts. She was a 50-year-old woman, a single parent, who had worked hard as a cleaning woman her whole life. She had no health insurance, and she was struggling to put her two sons through college. Um, She was a very proud woman, but she wasn't proud of her fainting spells, which would happen at work and sometimes keep her from working. And these spells had gone undiagnosed, obviously, because she didn't have a way to get to a doctor, even though she was working. She wasn't part of any retailer's picture, and she wasn't part of any employer alliance. But she was finally able to buy some affordable coverage once we launched the Health Connector, and she was able to see a doctor and get diagnosed. It turned out she had epilepsy, and it was treatable. When she came to tell her story at our board meeting, she held up the bag of pills which she was now able to buy through the retailer, and that was what was keeping her healthy and productively employed. On every front, she was doing the right thing, and we were supporting her in that. And she was so happy to report on top of that that now she was going to be able to do the work it took to put her sons through college. I see this as a huge success story, and it's an example of where government, insurers, and retail all came together to address those big things that are the ultimate measures of our system, cost, quality, and access. Are we providing that as a society? Why wouldn't we want to have 28 million more Eloises? I think we can do that if we have the will. We talk about Washington as kind of this thing over there. I want to say that's us, and we have to actually harness the collective will to demand that of our system. Because if we have that, we can address and drive change. We can do that in conjunction with retailers, but it needs to come from the polis, and that's us. Thank you, Rosemary Day. And that concludes closing statements on the resolution, Retail Alliances, Not Washington, Will Save the U.S. Healthcare System. And now it's time for you to vote a second time. If you can go again to your phones, log in as before to the URL iq2us.org forward slash vote. We'll have you vote a second time for, against the motion, for or against the motion, or undecided, whether you remained undecided or became undecided (laughs) as a result of close listening. Um, and that'll only take a few minutes to, uh, to lock out. I, I just want to say a couple of things while we're waiting for the results to be tabulated, which will take just a couple of minutes. Um, the first thing is, once again, I said at the beginning, but it's such a pleasure to uh, work with Mayo on this project. It's been fantastic. You are a fantastic partner, so thank you for that. And I also want to thank these four debaters. Um, it's clear that they all come from positions of commitment and passion. They disagreed, and yet you, you sat down and you argued this out with civility and respect and you brought arguments and you brought proof and we need much more of that. I want to congratulate you for setting a specific, a, a, a terrific, spectacular example of doing that. So thank you very, very much. I also just want to say I apologize if I was kind of mauling some of the names here. This is my first uh, Batniji Bilimovich debate. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't had that combination before, and I have this feeling that I chewed through it a couple of times, and you were too polite to call me on it. Um, and the last thing I want to say is I'm sorry we couldn't get to more questions, but these questions were great. We do a lot of these debates, and that's often a struggle. Maybe it's because you all know this area, but I really want to thank everybody who got up and asked a question. They were really, really helpful. Um, So uh, I I just have a a question I'd like to very quickly put to all four debaters very, very briefly. 
because we were asking all of you to listen uh, to these de- debaters and be willing to change your mind. I'm just wondering if we can start with you, Rajay, and go down the line. Did you hear anything from the other side that you actually found persuasive that made you say, I'm going to think about that again? Well, I think the interesting thing is that we actually agree on a number of points. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I fully agree that government needs to provide a very robust safety net for the yeah. poor. And that, that's an argument that I, that I made and that, that our, our opposition made. Um, you know, I, think, I think what I found uh, you know, pers- persuasive, perhaps, and, and something that I, I think I fundamentally agree with is that you know, the, the retail alliances are going to improve care access for, for the middle class. And you made the point that they're not going to improve care access for the poor. And that's clearly where the government fits in. Mm-hmm. Okay. And let me jump to the other side and I'll come back. How about you, Rosemary? Um, well, I'm a big fan. I'm impatient. I liked that, what you said at the beginning. And I'm, I'm a big fan of getting things done. And I know that government doesn't necessarily do that quickly. And there's a ton of reasons for that. It can occasionally. And I think we need to um, not malign government and do, you know, um, find those places of innovation. All that being said, it is compelling that there are awesome things happening in the private sector side, you know, with the help of venture capital and things where people are just racing to get to some really cool solutions. I just want them to be available for more people. Greg? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I agree with Roger in terms of the safety net, too. I think you look at our cost of health care and you look at other countries, but you look at their cost of social care when it's added to health care and it gets a lot closer to what we're doing. And I think that drives a lot better at, outcomes. So I think our the, where our money is going needs to be reallocated to mm. from care to social care, from health care. But we need to get those systems to be talking to each other because it's not the priority of either one, the other, other two. So, and I love Silver Tsunami, too. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Lisa? Yeah, you know, when you think about what is actually going to transform health care, and let's be honest, health care is a big Byzantine industry, it's turning a battleship. And, you know, I think both sides made fantastic arguments. We need the innovation of retail infused into traditional settings, sparked by changes in how insurers and the government pay everyone, all coming together in concert if we're really going to turn the battleship. All right. Well, thank you for all that. Um, I just want to do a little bit of a commercial for us, Intelligence Squared. I want to let you know that right now, this is the middle of our fall season. Um, and next month, we're going to be in New York City, which is our home, actually. We're going to be debating the future of the Democratic Party and whether um, progressive stars, these new stars who are winning on socialist tickets like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, are they the future of the American left? The resolution is progressive populism will save the Democratic Party. Um, our debaters include Jeff Weaver. He was Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign manager in 2016. His partner is Karine Jean-Pierre from MoveOn.org. They are being uh, opposed by third ways Jonathan, Jonathan Cowan and uh, Stephen Ratner, who is a veteran of the uh, Obama administration. Then later in the season, we're going out to Silicon Valley. We're going to be debating whether Silicon Valley has lost its soul. Um, and that's going to be in partnership <laughs> with the Techonomy Conference in San Francisco. And then on November 1st, and I love announcing this one, uh, on November 1st, the resolution we're going to be doing in New York is Trump is bad for comedy. Um, 
And on that one, we have uh, Andy Barowitz and uh, PJ O'Rourke are going to be arguing for the resolution. <laughs> We're going to have Billy Kimball, who uh, is one of the writers on the HBO show Veep, arguing against. Uh, you can get more information about all of our debates on our website, iq2us.org. We live stream, so if you can't get to Silicon Valley into New York, you can watch us uh, on our website. So, thank you for all of that. I want to announce our results. Remember, we have to... Ha- I'll do, back this up. I, I want to announce our results. Our resolution again, retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. Remember, you voted once before the resolution and once again after the resolution. It's the difference between the two votes that determines who our winner is. Here are the results. Before, in the preliminary vote, 30% agreed with the resolution, 36% were against, 34% were undecided. That's pretty much a three-way split. Again, those are the first results. It's the difference between that result and what I'm about to announce that determines our winner. On the resolution, retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system on the second vote. The second vote, the team arguing for, went up 40 to 49%. They pulled up 19 percentage points, which is the number to beat. The team arguing against the motion, their first vote, 36%. Their second vote, 47%. They picked up 11 percentage points, but that was not enough to win. It means the team, we're declaring our winner, is the team arguing for the resolution, retail alliances, not Washington, will save the U.S. healthcare system. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. Thank you.